Welcome to This Is Why We're All Depressed. I'm Cindy. I'm Ishizu. And today we're going to be talking about the Native Americans. So today, essentially, we're going to be having a conversation about Native American culture, as well as the large amount of oppression and stigma that they face in modern society. For, like for time purposes, we're going to be talking about Native Americans in North America. And even though this may sound like a, it's going to just be an info dump, stick with it. I promise it's not going to be like overly boring. Right? We'll try to make it not so boring because I feel like I think the Native Americans are uh, pretty interesting. Um, but I don't know how other people feel about just learning about their culture and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of information, but I mean, it's pretty interesting information. So let's just get started. So essentially, the first thing we're going to talk about is Native American history slash cultures. So let's just talk about history of Native Americans in um, America, right? Or in the U.S. So essentially, we're just going to talk about pretty much how Native Americans got royally fucked over by European conquerors and colonists. So although it's not really known when the first people arrived in America in terms of Native Americans, Native Americans were still here long before anybody from Europe came over, obviously, right? Relatively speaking, besides from small interregional conflicts, Native American societies were prospering, and it all changed when the Europe nation attacked, if you got my little um, avatar joke right there, but okay, I'll move on. Regard, starting in 1492, after Christopher Columbus invaded Native American land on the behalf of Spain, the genocide of what would become millions of Native Americans began. Going over all the different ways that Europe essentially fucked over the Native Americans would take way too long. So um, here are some quote-unquote highlights, right? Depressing highlights, but um, highlights nonetheless. So in October 1450, De Soto, a Spanish conquistador, engaged in a battle with Native Americans, which ultimately led to the death of hundreds of Native Americans. In 1680, a revolt from the Pueblo, Native Americans in New Mexico threatened Spanish rule over New Mexico, and this also led to a bunch of deaths in the terms of Native American lives. Now, in 1754, the French-Indian War began in which the Native Americans fought along with the French against British colonies to avoid Britain claiming French land. And don't get it wrong, the French were trashy to the Native Americans, too. They were just slightly less trashy. The Native Americans wanted to, um, you know, pick the side which favored them the most. And even though it was in a lot of favor as compared to the British colonists, um, the French did a, a little bit less douchiness, mm-hmm. essentially. So in November 1811, U.S. forces also attacked Native American chief Temesco and his younger brother Lala Tawika. Their community at the juncture of the Wabash River and the Tippecanoe River was destroyed completely. And then in 1812, some Native Americans sided with the British during the Revolutionary War in hopes of stopping Western expansion, while others did the exact opposite and they sided with the colonists or the patriots, I guess, in terms of against the British. And essentially, all of this relatively had similar goals of wanting their land back in terms of what the Native Americans were actually going for, because obviously nobody wants some random people there. And they took the best course of action that they thought at that time to be able to do this. And then in May 28th, 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which may be one of the dumbest shit I've ever heard about, right? Like, it's like the final boss of all the stupidity that Europeans (laughs) did, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of Native Americans. So, President Andrew Jackson signed this this 
Act, which gave plots of land west of the Mississippi River to Native American tribes in exchange for land that was taken from them. And keep this in mind, they literally took land from Native Americans and then tried to say that they were, you know, the better people by giving them land elsewhere. They pretty much just displaced a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It was like the diaspora. It is, it is like a diaspora, right? Yeah. Pretty sure it was the diaspora. Okay, anyways. In uh, 1836, the last of the Creek Native Americans left their land for Oklahoma as a part of the Indian removal process. Out of the once 10,000... Wait, 10... 15,000. 15, I cannot... 15,000 uh, Creeks who made the voyage to Oklahoma, more than 3,500 didn't survive. Like... Three thousand, yeah, because yeah, three thousand five hundred people. Imagine that's like that's like a fifth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. my more math skills aren't that good right now, but I think that's around a fifth. I'm pretty sure it's more than a fifth. Yeah, my math skills yeah, a little bit more than yeah, a fifth. Um, in 1838, with only two thousand Cherokees, only um, with only two thousand Cherokees having left their land in Georgia to cross the Mississippi River, President Martin Van Buren enlisted General Winfield Scott and seven thousand troops to speed up the process by holding them at gunpoint and marching them one thousand two hundred miles, which is <sighs> holding them at gunpoint. Wow, very they democratic. They Okay, colonists came over, declared themselves to be in charge of everything, and then literally just pissed on the entirety of the Native American land and culture and pretty much lives, too. I mean, like, so many people were hurt from this stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you, like, imagine displacing someone from, like, land that is rightfully theirs while you're an invader who shouldn't even be there in the first place? Like, that sounds... Like, the dumbest shit. Like, I don't even understand the logic right there, you know? Exactly. And so more than 5,000 Cherokees died as a result of the journey. Uh, we don't have specific numbers on how many were killed by this general or how many were died of the actual conditions on the road. But I'm pretty sure, like, it's not that pleasant. Yeah. The series of relocations of Native American tribes and their hardships and deaths during the journey would become known as the Trail Trail of Tears, Trail of Tears, which ultimately forcefully displaced sixty thousand Native Americans. And it wasn't until June second, nineteen twenty four, that Native Americans were given citizenship. Imagine being given citizenship in the land that you literally own. Exactly, they were one of the last people to be given citizenship. Of a country in which they were the first ones there. That's like, I swear to God. You know, when you think about it, technically speaking, all the European colonists and pretty much all the white people here now, they're technically all illegal immigrants if exactly. you want to go off on mm-hmm. that tangent, right? And then you see white people like talking about immigration and how it shouldn't be happening now. But Especially like when yeah. white people tell like, go back to where you come from. Like, why don't and you go like, back to where you come from? Yeah, and, like, I swear to God, they're doing stuff like that. But, like, paddling back to the whole idea of the fact that it's pretty much outrageous that Native Americans were given citizenship to their own goddamn land so late on, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so um, it, even with all these odds against them, Native Americans were still able to achieve many great things by not letting their voice or their, like, not, by not letting the oppressors silence their voice. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I feel like is a pretty good thing on their end, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, that's just a bit of the depressing-ass history, um, in case not everybody knew about it. So, let's just move on to the culture of Native Americans. And now, essentially, like, obviously, there's so many subsets of Native Americans because it's such a wide variety of people and cultures. So, we kind of just um, we researched and we found out that there's main groups in different geographical locations. So we're just going to be talking about the main ideas of culture from each group. So the first one is the Northeast group. And in terms of the area, tribes in the Northeast region extended from the current province of Quebec, which is in Canada, to the Ohio River Valley and down to the North Carolina coast. Some prominent groups in Included Gonquins, Erokes, Susquehannocks, uh, Mohicans, and Hurons. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not like exactly precise either, but um, yeah, that's the best we can do. Yeah, I mean, we um, we Googled the whole how to pronounce <laughs> because we didn't want to be uh, disrespectful in terms of pronunciation. So uh, we do apologize for pronouncing it incorrectly if anybody does end up hearing this. So now in terms of food, which honestly is always the best part, some participated in farming and specialized in corn, squash, and beans. And in Northeast uh, food terms, this was considered the sacred three sisters, while others like the Algonquians still retained a portion of hunting and gathering in terms of the men hunting most of the time and helping with the fields occasionally, while the women were more in charge of the whole gathering process. Now, in terms of the social and societal structure, the tribes really had no common currency, so they traded goods for goods in terms of a bartering system, depending on what they specialized in. For example, the Susquehannock in Pennsylvania traded wampum beads, which is essentially a type of bead made from various shells, for nets and furs from the Hurons, who had lots of furs since they lived in the Great Lakes region. And essentially, they traveled in villages with a few hundred residents, which is relatively small in comparison to modern-day society. And thousands of people settled were rare but not unseen. So there were some places which had larger clusters than 100 citizens, or I guess residents, but it was very rare. And then the men farmed and hunted while the women take took care of the children elderly, did chores around the house, and processed the food, with exceptions of a couple hunting and gathering tribes mentioned before, where it was more like a communal shared idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tribes in this region stretched down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico. Most well-known ones were known as the five civilized tribes, including is the southeast region. So um, tribes in this region stretched down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico. The most well-known ones were known as the five civilized tribes, including the Cerroquis. This is different from the Cherokees earlier. Uh, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, the Creeks, and the Seminoles. Pretty sure I did not say that last one right. Anyways, in terms of food, due to the lack of Uh, Due to the fertile lands they held, most of these tribes were excellent farmers. They planted a variety of crops such as beans, squash, corn, tobacco, sunflower, nuts, seeds, and fruits. Because they had no fertilizer, they practiced slash and burn agriculture, 
where they burn the fields to create new ones every season. Despite their great agricultural success, many still continue to hunt and fish, especially the Kalusa people in southern Florida, who developed the complex fishing and trapping systems. In terms of social structure, compared to the Northeast tribes, the Southeast tribes obviously had a greater population, judging on the size of their mounds, which is where they bury their dead. In fact, they had so much people that they evidently overhunted and deforested the environment around them, which led to population decline. The biggest city named Cahokia had an estimated population of 40,000. This was not without cost uh, to create these societies. The Creek people in Georgia had a water prison, prisoners. Wait, no, not water prison, war prisoners. Were, oh, um, yeah, that makes no sense. <laughs> the Creek people in Georgia. Three people in Georgia had <laughs> your own crack. <laughs> I am on crack. The Greek people in Georgia had war prisoners work in their fields as a form of slavery. Wealth distribution was also not equal as villages were organized around chiefdoms in which families were ranked from high to low depending on their proximity to the chief. Mm. In terms of religion, not much is known, but most historians agreed that they had a spiritual connection to the land and used their mounds, their burial grounds, for worshipping nature, such as the sun, corn, and water, which sustained them. Again, corn is very important. So that's essentially um, that region. And now the next region is the Great Plains. So in terms of area, the Great Plains, the tribes that were included in this were the Pawnees, the Mandans, the Omahas, the Vicatans, and Taini, among others. So in terms of food, the three sisters, which are bean squash and corn, uh, make a comeback in terms of this area as well, where they were introduced, but only practiced among the most fruitful rivers. They planted herbs rather than food with hunting and gathering, still remaining as a dominant practice. And these people used spears with clovis points, which is pretty much just a fancy way of saying like a hella sharp spear. And these clovis point spears were capable of killing animals the size of African elephants, which I mean like, whoa, right? This is supported by the idea that Native Americans hunted mammoths, buffaloes, and bison, which by the way, horses weren't introduced until the 15th or 16th century, and buffaloes were too aggressive to be ridden. So Native Americans basically hunted mammoths on foot, which I mean, like, that's a whole new level of athleticism that I don't even think I could imagine achieving you know mm-hmm, exactly that i was badass right yeah i, was, I had to literally search up like if buffaloes can be ridden when i was uh looking through this part because i was like they did not do that on foot but actually they did because you know they can't just ride each other i ride each other you want them <laughs> oh my to ride God. each other i'm like i'm down for riding some people if you know what i mean but okay Anyways, when horses were introduced, many of the tribes switched from somewhat agricultural to full nomadic buffalo hunters. And then in terms of societal structures and more um, agrarian societies, Native Americans, like the Wicketons, built grass homes near their crops. They made boats by stretching the skin of bison over wooden frames to trade. But many more tribes focused on the hunting aspect. They had teepees tented out of the buffalo skin and wood that was made um, easy to put up and take down. Sometimes they also combined both nomadic and sedentary lifestyles, planting crops in the spring, but hunting and 
are turning into more nomadic creatures, I guess, or societies rather, in the summer. They would harvest in the fall and then hunt again in the winter. And then in terms of population, tribes were divided into bands, which can consist anywhere from a dozen people to a few hundred people, which, I mean, I feel like it'd be better to be in the dozen people one, but maybe that's because I'm just like hella antisocial. But anyways, <laughs> these bands were often united together to farm or hunt bison, and as a result, village populations fluctuated and had little political structure. Society gradually became less um, egalitarian, which is men and women being being equal, and the men who hunted had most of the impact on politics and social order and economics. So they kind of took a step back from the whole equality regimen in this area. Now, in terms of religion, it's most possible and it's all... Okay, so in terms of religion, it's like almost impossible to generalize religious traditions in the Great Plains because each tribe had their own practices and rituals involved around and revolved around the sun and nature with earth as the mother of all spirits. And one example of this were the sun dances done by the Cheyennes. So although this is one example, we do see that because there were just so many different um, kind of tiny groups in this area, it's hard to broadcast blanket over all of the religious things that were happening in that area. What we're going to talk about is the West. This area extends from the top of Washington through California and into parts of Nevada and Utah. The tribes in this region were much more diverse. For example, over a hundred tribes lived in modern-day California alone, not including the other areas. And the Great Basin, the area between the Rockies and the Sierra Nevadas, was home to the Mono, Paitu, Bannock, Sosha, Ute, and Gosuites. Without, well, uh, sorry, wrong pronunciation. That was Spanish. Gosuites. Okay, I cannot say it without a Spanish accent. Uh, <laughs> Go sweetest. Okay, that's that's good. Never mind. Ignore that. <laughs> um, food in terms in terms of food, most indigenous people hunted and gathered. The Colorado River was essentially important, as many collected berries and fruits and planted tobacco along it, along 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 it, along it, along it, like elongated, but like not elongated. You know. Okay. Along it, acorns were a vital part. And I think this is really interesting, is that women would remove the toxins inside the pulp and make the nut into a flower. In terms of hunting, they hunted small animals, such as snakes and lizards, and fished. Salmon was especially plentiful, and they used harpoons to stab the fish. They were also the first one to create canoes. In terms of social structure, the natives traded as well. Because of their high regard for acorn, it became a source of currency. Their houses were called wikiups, um, and then UPS, which is made out of wood, leaves, and brush. Very easy to build and easy to move. The more resource plentiful areas had more permanent villages, and by plentiful, I mean more fish and acorns. They kind of sound like squirrels to me. Like they're talking okay, resourceful squirrels. Okay, that's some vegan health BS right there. They're really working it. Anyways, however, this concentration of resources also created strict social classes. 
Again, the men would hunt and fish, and the women would harvest and process the food. Some of the tribes who were positioned strategically along the Columbia River would practice slavery, such as the Chinookan people. In less populated areas, tribelets ranging from a couple hundred to a thousand divided into groups of ten to twelve people to hunt and gather. These groups were more nomadic due to less concentrated resources. And I feel like a lot of people have the misconception that native tribes were just like a hundred. But no, they they had like big cities and big tribes as well. Yeah, nomadic just divided up into smaller tribes just to make hunting、mm-hmm. easier. Because like even for buffaloes, if if like if I if I heard buffalo sees like a thousand people charging at them at once, I'm pretty sure they won't you know charge. Know what to do? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, in terms of religion, these people held everyday tasks like hunting and gathering in spiritual significance. Like that's some. High key like dedication. Many would pray for good luck during hunts, while others developed rituals around it. For example, in the Great Basin, the Hapitan people would throw salmon bones back into the Columbia River. Like salmon doesn't have a lot of bones, so why not? The next segment we're going to be talking about is Native American representation in media. And quick spoiler alert: there is like none. As well as the stigma slash oppression faced by Native Americans, so I feel like the best way to do this is probably to address the best known representation of Native Americans in media, which is Pocahontas. So the story of Pocahontas most people know is one which pretty much essentially glorifies oppressors and hides the treacherous acts of European invaders. In painting a picture of the story of Pocahontas in a positive light. The popular media representation of the figure adds to the feeling of genocidal apology. I feel like, even though some people know the real Pocahontas story isn't exactly what's portrayed in the movies and picture books, this image that's painted by these picture books and popular media is still the most prominent one in their mind, and hence it is subconsciously obstructs the person from understanding. The actual story of Pocahontas, and on top of that, it obstructs people from understanding the actual nature of Native Americans, and they kind of just boil it down to popular media representation of Pocahontas. So the real story of Pocahontas is that she was kidnapped, raped, assaulted, then murdered by the same people who promised to keep her safe. In fact, Pocahontas wasn't even her real name. It was the name that her father called her endearingly in order to cope with the grief of his wife dying during childbirth. Her real name was Matalka. Yeah, and then I guess another major part of the whole Pocahontas story, or pretty much, I guess, the biggest other actor in the Pocahontas story in popular media is John Smith. And let's just get this straight: as a baseline, John Smith was a dick. Okay. Smith was feared by many Native American people because he was literally known to enter villages and put guns to the heads of chiefs and demand food and supplies, which aggressive as hell, right? And he, of course, was also like a multi-layered dick. He was like a dick onion, and so essentially, he began to say that Matoka, who was ten years old at that time, while、well, he was twenty-seven, saved his life, right? Everybody knows. In the Pocahontas movie and stuff, how John Smith said that Pocahontas saved his life. However, this for one isn't true because he wasn't really in danger of dying in the first place. He was actually being honored, so to form an alliance with the chief of the tribe. And two, during the pro- process of him being honored, Matoka wasn't even there. 
she didn't even have the slightest inclination towards Smith also. Like, the entirety of the movie kind of takes, like, a love story between the two, whereas Matoka didn't have any actual feelings towards Smith, contrary to what popular culture tries to make people believe. So, Matoka was alive during the 1600s as well, where sadly young native children were the targets of rape by uh, European colonists and invaders, to the point where native women have to sacrifice themselves to save their children. And the Poetan people, which is the tribe that uh, Pocahontas was from, they were shocked by the behavior and were horrified that the English government did nothing to solve it and offered no protections. Also, during this time, Matoka was coming of age. During a ceremony, Matoka was able to choose a new name, and that is when she selected Pocahontas after her mother. During the courtship dance, it is likely that she danced with Kokom, the younger brother of the chief of Japaza, and she actually married this guy at around 14, which again may seem young to us, but around that time, it was normal, right? So she actually got married to this guy, and she soon became pregnant. So the real love story in Pocahontas' situation, contrary to what popular media says, was between her and this one warrior. So basically, at around this point, the speculation to kidnap Pocahontas had surfaced. Pocahontas was forcibly traded, quote-unquote traded, for a copper pot, and before leaving the village, she had to give up her baby. After she left, her husband was killed by the colonist invaders. At the colonist settlement, Pocahontas was repeatedly raped by different colonists. Later, she was disrespected by being given a different name and brought back to Europe in order to show oppressors the way the colonists interacted with the natives. And hey, there's nothing to worry about. Being extremely intelligent, Pocahontas caught on, and due to this, she was likely murdered, only to further have her name disrespected by having it turned into propaganda at the hands of popular media. So that's the main, I guess, Native American representation that most people end up thinking about. But in terms of other Native American um, representation stuff, we see that pretty much Native Americans are kind of invisible in terms of modern U.S. society. A representation of contemporary Native Americans was found by a study to be completely absent from K-12 education, pop culture, news media, and politics. Essentially, two-thirds respondents to this study said that they didn't know a single Native American person, and only 13% of state history curriculums talk about Native Americans after the year 1900. Right? So what we're seeing is Native Americans are kind of erased from media other than these few stereotypes, which is why that these stereotypes are ingrained in people's minds so much. And besides the Pocahontas stereotype, a few other popular stereotypes are, you know, the Redskins, obviously still pretty negative, as well as a lot of uh, Native American portrayal as um, quote-unquote barbarians and people who didn't really have a lot of social structure, where obviously, as we talked to you about, they did have quite a bit of social structure and regulations for that. And also, we see that mainstream news and media and pop culture tends to paint a narrative where Native Americans do exist, but they're primarily deficit of, you know, actual qualities that Native Americans have. And now in terms of oppression, this could go on for literally a whole new podcast, so I'll just boil it down to a few points real quick. Native American oppression tends to go back to obviously one major route, which is their uh, reservations. 
And for one, having reservations for Native American societies in a land which is their own seems so fucking counterproductive. But let's just assume for a minute that it's not. These reservations, they're typically underfunded and they have little to no resources as compared to other members of society, which really does factor into the whole idea of Native Americans not being able to have the same opportunities as other people do because of the oppressive system that is built against them and is still sustained for such a long time. And another form of oppression which Native Americans face in current day society is that although it may not seem like a straightforward oppression, they tend to not know about their own history as taught in places other than just history books, if you get what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. Like, people who are second generation, third generation Native Americans, they don't get to learn about their history in the same way that others do. And they often face stereotypes against them, and they often have their culture appropriated by Halloween costumes and stuff like that. And essentially, like I said, there's so many more things, but it typically boils down to those main factors. And when we're talking about Native American oppression, the struggles they face, the pipeline also comes into question. So, like, Cindy, if you want to elaborate more on the pipeline. Okay, definitely. First, the Dakota Pipeline is officially called the Dakota Access, a nearly 1,200-mile-long pipeline from the backhand oil fields in North Dakota to Illinois. The project was ultimately rejected by the Obama administration, but it is by no means settled. Just to clarify, Native Americans weren't the first to protest. The Iowa landowners did so about a year earlier, yet no media gave them attention until after thousands of indigenous people camped outside the pipeline in the prairie. Their primary goal is to protest the contamination of their drinking water from the Missouri River. In addition, it would run through sacred native burial grounds of the Sioux tribe in Standing Rock. It is worth noting that the tribe leaders have publicly stated that U.S. Army Corps of Engineers decided to allow the pipeline to run within half a mile of the local reservations without consulting the tribe governments and without a thorough study of the impacts. This gets a little complicated here. Because officially, the tribes are autonomous, meaning they have their own governments and everything. So this violates federal law and the native treaties with the U.S. government. In terms of protesting, the first protest camp emerged in April of 2016 with Native Americans riding on horsebacks and establishing a spiritual camp called the Sacred Stone near the pipeline. Okay, so since then, other tribes and non-native supporters have emerged. Unfortunately, due to all of the efforts of the supporters, the Sioux tribe prevailed, and the judge strike down the DAPL permits. One of the reasons is that the court observed that the DAPL's parent company, essentially, had in the business safety record, which, quote-unquote, does not inspire confidence in terms of preventing leaks and responding to spills. So although this isn't exactly, you know, they didn't exactly end the whole DAPL thing due to the protest or due to actual care for the Native American society. It can be noted that at least, hey, you know, it did end. Mm -hmm. So lastly, we have some interesting facts about the Native Americans. So first, between 1100 and 1400 CE, ongoing conflict between the Iroquois and Algonquians in the Northeast led to the Great League of Peace, aka the Iroquois League which contained the Mohawks, Onidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and the Senecas. 
The Iroquoians met for about a year to devise a solution to the cyclical pattern of violence and retribution. The result was a system in which each member group could maintain a level of local autonomy, but the League would unite over trade policies and diplomatic issues. They also put forth republican principles such as a dual system of federalism, in other words, balancing local and national powers, for the first time in North America. Therefore, it is not unreasonable to argue that the Iroquois League was the first American democracy 400 years before the U.S. Constitution. That's that's pretty nice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So another interesting fact is the Walking Purchase. So essentially, this was a deal done between William Penn, which was the founder of Pennsylvania, and the Delaware Indians. A lot of stuff kind of happened during this time, but basically what the two groups agreed on was to redivide the land. But neither had a reliable way to measure distances. They came up with the idea of walking, which, I mean, like, come on, man. But still, in a half days, a man would walk about 40 miles, the distance of the land between the Fork and Delaware and the Lehigh Rivers. William Penn's son, Thomas Penn, hired the three fastest walkers in the colony, which, I mean, what, did you, like, time them to figure that out? I don't know. I feel like it's still a cool idea, right? But regardless, and literally offered, he literally offered a large prize to the one who recovered the most land. The winners walked a carefully cleared path. So long story short, the colonists covered more than twice the land the Delaware tribe expected, and the Delaware tribe ended up losing 1,200 square miles because once again, the white people wanted to cheat. Yeah. Like, how can they be so gullible? It's not, gullib- it's not gullible as much as it is, um, why do they still have faith in people who have literally screwed them over and proven that they are not worthy of any faith? I guess they're just um, too good of people, you know? I know, exactly. <sighs> Another interesting fact is around the Mayflower. Some of you may have heard of Squanto, a Native American who helped the Mayflower survive. But guess what? That's not the whole story. Before meeting the pilgrims, he was abducted by English explorer George Weymouth and taken to Britain as an exhibit for his financial backers. For George Weymouth's financial backers. Being extremely talented, he learned English and somehow returned to his homeland. Upon returning, he was abducted again by Englishman Thomas Hunt, who sold him into slavery in Spain. So he somehow, like, long story, but you can search it up, like, this guy's pretty amazing. He ultimately returned again to find his whole tribe killed by smallpox. And after that, he met the pilgrims. Yeah, I I don't know, man. I mean, like, that's pretty crazy that that guy was able to do all of that stuff. He, like, was able to persevere even though Mech English Explorer was still out there fucking everything up yet again. But I guess that's kind of the moral of today's podcast, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um colonists and uh, European invaders just kind of came over and said fuck you to pretty much everybody they met who was not white. And uh, yeah, no, that's just kind of how it went. When the colonists first arrived, they had like feathers and everything in their hair, so the natives thought they were birdmen. Ah! Oh. Like feathers... Like on purpose? No, I'm pretty sure they weren't on purpose. Like the feathers in their hat and like their clothing was like oh, pretty weird. Stuff. They're yeah, like yeah, the yeah. European. You've seen like the European clothing like back then, right? Yeah, yeah. It was not like 
did not look comfortable. So anyways, the natives thought they were like birdmen or something. Honestly, I, I can understand that. It's easier to accept birdmen to understand that people would actually wear that as a fashion choice, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyways, before we digress too much and start trashing people even further, uh, let's just end the podcast here. And real quick, before we end it, I'd just like to make a blanket disclaimer again, once again, that uh, we know we pronounced a lot of the Native American stuff incorrectly, and we're really sorry that we did that. I mean, I did try to look at the phonetics and stuff, but I guess my... um tongue doesn't know how to say all of them or i just wasn't able to pronounce them correctly i don't think cindy was able to pronounce some of them correctly either so we apologize for that even though you know we didn't mean anything bad by it obviously Mm -hmm. we did try to put in the effort but i guess we're just too um illiterate (laughs) or literate what is the phonetically illiterate to do it properly good we're good word choice yeah phonetically illiterate dude i'm so smart Okay, <laughs> let's just, uh, yeah, no, I guess that's the end. Okay, have a nice day and tune in to our next episode. Which is about affirmative action, by the way, mm-hmm. if anybody cares. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you don't, but like, <laughs> by the off chance you do. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. bye. Bye.